My name is Carrie Adams, and I am the Assistant Professor of Choral Music Education at Florida State University. This is my second year at Florida State. Um, prior to coming here, I completed my doctorate at the University of North Texas in music education, and I taught middle school choir, band, and general music in rural Missouri before that. Uh, Dr. Adams, thank you again for, for agreeing to come on today. Um, first question is, could you tell us uh, about some of the research that you're doing on music performance assessment festivals uh, in music education? Sure. So I'm currently working on a national study along with an orchestra colleague and a band colleague. Um, and what we're doing is we're just looking to see what are the practices across the country when it comes to music performance assessment. Um, what kinds of things are being assessed and in what ways? We're looking at uh, whether or not there are prescribed music lists that teachers have to select music from. Um, we're looking at what kind of organizations oversee those events. We're also looking at how results from those events are displayed, whether they're publicly available or not, and whether or not they're included in teacher evaluations in any way. Um, so we're just trying to get an overall picture of what, what MPAs look like across the country, where the similarities, where the differences, and how are teachers operating within that system. What are the... Um, things that you've found so far in terms of time frame Is this a research-based thing that we're looking at for multiple years? What's the process that you're in right now? So we're, we're as far as MPA practices, we're looking at uh, pre-COVID practices the last, last few years before COVID. We understand that things were in flux um, during COVID and, and now things are probably going to change a little bit post-COVID. Although really most of the teachers we've talked to have said that this year everything has pretty much gone back to the way it was before. There's not a lot of allowances this year for um, difficulties due to COVID. Yeah, so uh, long-term, what we really wanna delve into is what is the experience of teachers within these systems? So our, our first step is to figure out what does it look like across the country? Um, and then we want to really dive into uh, how are teachers able to exert agency in the classroom with these systems in place? Um, are these systems being used to evaluate them in any way? I, there was a, an article um, a, a little bit after, uh, like a year or so after Race to the Top passed um, with President Obama. There was an article in Arts Policy Review from Philip Hash saying, what is this going to look like for music teachers? Are we going to be looking at trying to standardize music practices and music assessments in order to sub in for standardized test scores? And so we're looking to see, is that the case? Um, and then uh, eventually we also wanna look at what are the inequities and the barriers that are within that system and what are the things that teachers can do at an individual level or at a state level to address those things and to be sure that the systems are working well for them and for their students. Great. What are some of the bits of research that you're finding in terms of uh, positive results that you're seeing? So there are a lot of teachers and policymakers who um, really see MPA as um, a great way to provide feedback for teachers and for students as an educational opportunity for them. Um, there are a lot of places where maybe they can't afford to have a clinician come in or they, they don't have the time or resources for that, but they may have access to a clinic when they go to MPA. Um, as long as they're able to, to get there and, and pay those fees. 
Um, there are also a lot of people who believe that MPAs serve as um, some an external accountability for teachers to ensure that they're doing best practice in the classroom. Um, and there are some people who think that that's a necessary required thing for there to be some sort of an external something um, to hold teachers accountable and to check in on progress. This is such a hard question for me to answer. I really struggle with this. Um, there are uh, a lot of a lot of people who see um, MPAs as a great way to guide first year teachers too, um, especially places that have the prescribed music list in place. There are some people who argue that that's a really great resource for new teachers who maybe aren't familiar with a lot of repertoire that would be developmentally appropriate for their ensembles. And so they can go into the PML and look at levels and figure out what's going to be a good fit for their ensemble. And, and um, so a lot of people see that as a, a great advantage to having these programs in place as well. When you were in the school system, uh, did you find the use of that prescribed list um, in your first year as useful to you at that point? Well, I taught in Missouri and we didn't have a PML. Um, so I didn't, I did not have that experience with, with that system. And I also was very fortunate that my, when I, when my students decided in my third year of teaching that they were not getting an educational experience from going to MPA, I went to my administrator and said, my students are not finding this to be a useful thing. And this is the solution they come up with instead. And my administrator was supportive of that. Um, and so I, I didn't even attend MPA with my students after my, my third year in the classroom. Um, and we can talk more about that if you, if you want to and what, what that looked like. But, um, but as far as the PML in particular, for, for me, that was not something that existed. Um, and I, but I do, I can see that as a potential resource. I know a lot of times uh, choral students in particular go into the classroom and they want to program the stuff they sing with their college choir. Um, and so they having access to that list where they're able to find pieces that are maybe more developmentally appropriate could definitely be a useful thing. As long as there's someone who is keeping up with that list and updating it and editing it and adding new pieces and taking away pieces that are problematic. And that's not always the case. We've, we found in a lot of states that have a PML, um, they don't have their own PML. They just require their teachers to use the PML from Texas. And so now those teachers are so far removed from the process that they don't have any control at all over what goes on that list. Literally, someone in another state is figuring that out. Um, so th those things can be problematic. But but having a resource where you can go through and look by level could theoretically be really helpful to anyone, but especially an early career teacher. What was uh, the process in which your students felt that they wanted to share with you that they didn't want to attend it anymore? Yeah, so um, after my third year, well, every year in the spring, I always made sure that we had a day or two where we sat down together and I just asked my students, what do you want me to know? What do you wish that I knew about your experience in this class? And those were some of the most difficult and most productive conversations that I ever had in the classroom. And um, one year we had that conversation immediately after we had been to festivals, what we called it in Missouri. Um, and we went through the comments together and we had been clinicked at the, in that particular situation. And we talked about that experience and, um, my, 
several of my students expressed the feeling that what they did over the course of the year, boiling that down to a number was reductive. And they, they said insulting to the, what they had created together, the community they had built, the work that they had put in, they felt like um, that it just was, it wasn't an accurate representation. And I always feel at this point in the story that I have to insert that we got ones because that's the culture we live in that we have to say, oh, well, did you stop going to contests because you weren't getting good scores? They were, they were getting ones, but they were saying like, what does that even mean? It doesn't really mean anything. Um, and so I said, well, what would you want to do instead? And the, what they came up with was that they wanted to do something that served the community instead of going to be assessed in some way. And so they generated the, an idea of doing kind of a mini tour that would just be a day long, but we would go and perform at a couple of elementary schools. We went to a neighboring town and per performed at a nursing home. We went to the veterans home. Um, and then we had, had a meal somewhere, went to a park, hung out together, sang in the park for a little bit, um, went to some businesses downtown and sang for some people. So it, we were, we were in just serving the community, giving back to the community instead of doing something like going and, and getting judged and reduced to a score. Um, and I was really fortunate that my administration was highly supportive of that. And so the, the last few years that I was in the classroom, that's what we did in the spring instead of going to contest. So it sounds like what you did instead, there was something that, that helped to cultivate what what you wanted to have within your choral community. So what is that that, that you wanted that, to come out of that? What, what did you want to come out of that? Well, I really left that up to them. I mean, they, they were the ones that were having this experience together. And what they said they wanted was to give back and to serve in some way. And I will say that as a, as a part of that event, one thing we did was we visited a local university and we watched their choir rehearse and then we got on stage and sang with them. And then when their choir left, the professor clinicked my group for a little bit. So they were still getting also that educational experience of getting to be around other choral musicians and getting clinicked. Um, but the primary purpose of the day was giving back. And I, I really think that that was the culture of the program and of the ensemble was that we make music not to achieve a score or to have a certain product. We create music to give back to the world, to connect to the wall, people who are outside of the walls of our classroom. Um, and that was the primary goal of that choral program. And so that fit our goal much better than going to a festival would. Absolutely. Have you noticed across the country in the research that you've done that most educators in choral music start with the same goals and have those same passions and then walk into these state situations where, you know, this is something that you've got to do to prove yourself as a, as a young choral educator, you know, that's kind of a pressure that we all feel of, I, I want to also get that superior rating to prove that I am also a good teacher. And yeah, I'm trying to create these opportunities for my students to feel the same acceptance and, and service that I felt through the program that I was a part of, um, but it gets lost in the mix. Have you, have you seen that across the country as well a little bit? Absolutely, and I think about the pre-service teachers that I work with here at FSU and um, talking to them in their first year, their first couple of years in the classroom. Every year around this time, 
um, from the pre-service teachers I work with here and the ones I worked with when I was in my doctorate, I get emails from people saying, I didn't get the scores that I thought I was going to get. And everyone else on social media is posting about their ones. And I feel like I'm just a terrible teacher and I don't know what to do. And, and they really wrap up their, their self-worth in it in a lot of ways. And I think there's, you know, we hear in general education this, we don't want to teach to the test over and over again, that this is the issue with standardized tests is we end up teaching to the test and that's not what we want to do. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what teachers end up feeling like they have to do. Um, because like you said, even in places that we found it's not a part of formal teacher evaluations, then I will ask the teacher, okay, well, but if you were to go to contest and get threes, do you think that would impact your reputation? And every time the answer is, oh yes, absolutely. And so there's that fear of, well, but if I don't, teach to teach to the test here if I don't make sure I'm addressing everything that's going to be on the MPA rubric and I cover just the skills that they care about at festival then I'm not going to get ones and then people are going to think I'm a bad teacher and then I'm going to think I'm a bad teacher and on and on and on and I run into this a lot also when I'm teaching my choral methods course and when we talk about things like how do we make this a meaningful, purposeful experience for students? There are always pre-service teachers who will tentatively raise their hand and say, but what if I do that and then I don't get a one? And so there's that constant fear underwriting everything, even when it's not technically part of a formal evaluation, the culture is still that you're just expected to get a one. And who do you feel is creating that culture? That's, I mean, that's such a great question. And it's impossible to answer, I think. I, I mean, it starts, I think, for a lot of teachers with their high school programs when they were students. And when, when they were going as students and their teacher was putting all this emphasis on the one and the rating and getting so excited that they got ones and so sad if they didn't. And so where did it start for those teachers? You know, you, you track it back forever. Um, some people would argue that it comes from administrators, that administrators put pressure over teachers to earn those high marks. Administrators maybe don't always completely understand what it means or what it is indicative of. And so they have these high expectations that they're gonna get ones across everything. Um, sometimes it comes from the community. If, especially if you're in a program that has historically been super well-funded and has achieved well, that the parents and the boosters expect those things. Um, so I think all of those pieces are part of the puzzle. They're all interconnected. Um, and it's just really difficult to tease those things out. What has been your experience with adjudicators during assessment season and, and what what are the different trends that you've seen across the country with adjudicator training in general and what that what that means for for different states and and how do people feel about the adjudicator training that you've seen so adjudicator training is wildly different across the country um, there are some states where there's no training required at all there's some states where there's required training that happens maybe at the state conference and then that's it. Um, there are some states where you have to complete an extensive training and then judge a couple of times with someone overseeing you um, and really everything in between. And the 
most consistent thing that I found though uh, from the states that I've talked to so far is uh, frustration with collegiate professors who are adjudicating. And I remember feeling that when I was in the classroom, like that the often the most challenging adjudicators that I had were people who had been teaching college for 20 years and they were judging my middle school choir. And um, so there was a disconnect there. And I've also found that in a lot of states that do require training, they don't require training for collegiate professors. They only require training for adjudicators who are practicing or retired teachers. Um, but if you're a collegiate professor, you don't have to go through training. There are some states that even specifically have said, we don't want collegiate professors to adjudicate because of that reason. So um, that, that seems to be the most consistent uh, frustration that I have found with adjudicators. But it does seem like, especially at states that have a both a regional and a state level of MPA, that at the regional level, it's almost all retired teachers or practicing teachers. Um, and I think, but even, even then, there's an, there can be issues that crop up because I taught in a rural community. Um, I had very different challenges, expectations, and support than someone who teaches in a wealthy suburban suburban district, than someone who teaches in a urban district. Um, and so, even if you have prior experience within one context, that doesn't necessarily transfer to a full understanding of what uh, other people are facing and what to expect in those programs. Have you seen any kind of equity training amongst the adjudicator training that happens or cultural training to help adjudicators really see the value in these different groups of people that are coming into assessment? I have not. Um, every adjudicator training that I have found has been, here's how to use this rubric. And sometimes that'll, that'll be accompanied with, maybe they watch videos of choirs that are and say like, you should have rated this as a one, you should have rated this as a two, you should have rated this as a three. Um, but there's, there's no, um, as far as I have seen, there is not really a discussion of issues of diversity or equity within those. And there also doesn't seem to be a whole lot of discussion as far as various styles. Um, outside of what we think of as the traditional Western canon and the sound that we associate with that, with bel canto singing. Um, the rubrics seem to be designed for the most part with those things in mind. So if we were to design a rubric that included, or that was more inclusive to uh, a diverse cultural population of style or anything like that, um, because, like, I, I know, for instance, in Florida, they didn't really redesign the rubric. What they did was they reclassified different genres that you were going to be adjudicated in. So if you had a special category ensemble, that would usually be your vocal jazz or if it was a gospel ensemble or something like that, which basically pulls that out of the choral landscape and says this is a completely different landscape. It's not traditional. This is not within our traditional realm. So if the idea was to create a rubric that was more inclusive, in your opinion, I'm sorry if this question is hard, how would that look? That's a very good and very difficult question. Um, now, if you don't want to answer it, that's fine too. <laughs> well, I first I want to talk to your point about 
um, the removal of certain types of choirs from MPA practices. And we see that in band too, where jazz band is its own thing that right. doesn't, doesn't get to be adjudicated in the same way as a concert band does. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we see that with, uh, non, with non-Western styles, with uh, styles like gospel and jazz, and also with popular music. Um, and there's this feeling that pop music is what you do for the spring concert to celebrate getting done with MPA <laughs> um, and that it doesn't count as legitimate repertoire to be used. And so then that goes back to the piece of the, of the PML of what goes onto the prescribed music list and what are we saying about the types of music and the types of music making that we value and that we devalue from that. So uh, when it comes to the, the rubric itself, the, the issue is often that we have, um, we have text within the rubric that is generic things like tone quality. Well, what does tone quality mean? What does tone quality mean in a Rachmaninoff? And what does it mean in a spiritual arrangement? And what does it mean in a gospel piece? And what and what does it mean in a Estonian piece? Right? Those are all going to be incredibly different sounds that we ask the choir to make. And so perhaps it's an adjustment to the rubric. Perhaps it's an adjustment to the adjudicator training on how to use the rubric, where they're exposed to a variety of, of tone qualities and sounds. Um, I think about a an MPA where I served as a clinician and there were ensembles that did sing a wide variety of, of music and styles and music from different areas of the world um, and often used the same tone quality for all of those things. And I, I don't know, I, I really wonder if I were to go look at the judges sheets, how they would have scored that if, because it was an excellent bel canto tone, but it's not necessarily appropriate for every single style of singing. And so I, I, if we're judging ensembles the same across stylistic changes, um, what can result is inaccuracy in cultural representation for those pieces. And I think that a lot of teachers opt to just not program that kind of music for MPA rather than take that risk. I know I would be very afraid to program an Estonian piece and take my choir with that super bright Eastern European forward sound and have an adjudicator who slams them because there's not enough resonance in the back and it's not, they're expecting a different sound. So I would, I would probably choose to just not program that piece um, for MPA out of fear that a judge isn't going to understand and accurately assess. If there was a way to have every director include some kind of introduction to their ensemble, whether it was a written essay about the music choices that they've selected and why the choices were selected and what they did to prepare their ensembles with a specific type of tone quality based on the piece that they've chosen or what culture it came from and the research that they've done. Um, what would you ask in that from, from those educators? And, and is that something that MPA should include? I'm, so I think there are there's good and bad to both to that to that um, the idea of having information for the judges. Um, 
And I think more about uh, with the, your idea with the repertoire, I don't, I think that's golden. Like everyone should be doing that. That's amazing. That's genius. Um, I think it that if we talk about accountability would hold teachers accountable to make sure that they're not culturally appropriating and that they're selecting music and doing their research and um, understanding the piece fully if they have to provide that information um, to the adjudicators. I think there are pieces we probably wouldn't see at MPA anymore because they wouldn't be able to justify it as being culturally authentic. Um, I, When you were talking about that, I thought about in Florida and several other states that we've looked at, um, there is a judge adjudicator sheet that teachers provide along with their pieces. And they don't talk about their repertoire in there, although they could, I assume, but um, it basically is a place where they say, this is how many times we meet, how many hours we meet during the week, how many hours we meet outside of school. Um, these are how, and you can say, this is how many years my students have been in choir, these are the challenges that we face. These are the issues that specific students have. So you can provide information for judges in that way. And I think that's really a wonderful resource that um, I would think as a teacher, it would make me feel a lot more comfortable taking my students to MPA because I know I'm able to provide some context, especially now. I can't tell you how many judges sheets I have seen this year that have said these We've only, we've only been in person singing for this long or all of last year we were not singing for the first semester and then we were masked. And so that provides a little bit of context, especially now with the struggles that people are going through. My concern about that though, is that bias is a real issue that we face in everything that we do. And I don't think that adjudication is exempt from that. And I wonder if there is a danger of um, some adjudicators looking at that sheet and then making assumptions about the ensemble before they even start to sing. Um, and so I think, again, going back to the adjudicator training process, that having some conversation in adjudicator training where we're talking about implicit bias and we're talking about issues of diversity and we're talking about issues of equity within the MPA context would be incredibly useful because uh, adjudicators need to be aware of those things. And I think many of them probably are, but, but we know that there are people everywhere, including in our field, who maybe don't recognize those issues of bias. Um, and so taking the time to talk about them within the specific context, I think could not hurt. It could only help um, everyone, adjudicators, teachers, students alike. Um, so, all right. So what possible disadvantages and concerns um, uh, may develop uh, in music performance assessments? I remember we were discussing earlier um, uh, about the socioeconomic status issue um, as it pertains to ensembles who participate in MPAs. You want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, well, first of all, I think a, a big potential issue with MPAs um, is going to be how do we interpret the results? So do we say that a one means that you are a good teacher? I think there are a lot of great teachers who get ones. I think there are a lot of great teachers who get threes. I think there are a lot of not great teachers who get ones. Um, there are a lot of factors that go into how well an ensemble performs at something like MPA um, that has more to has to do with more than just the the teacher's efficacy. 
And a big one of those is going to be socioeconomic status of the school. What kind of funding do they have? What kind of supports do they have? If you're in a very wealthy school where you're 90% of your students take private lessons and have taken private lessons for multiple years, then your ensemble is probably going to be at a higher level than someone who has an ensemble where no one's ever taken private lessons on anything. Um, if you have a strong booster program and you're able to pull in a lot of clinic guest clinicians and go on a lot of trips, that's going to be different than an ensemble that only ever leaves campus and gets clinicked when they go to MPA. Um, I think about uh, Oregon um, was the state, I believe, where I, I, that I talked to someone where they, they have, they rank all their ensembles at the state level and um, ensembles can attend as many district MPAs as they want to and get that practice before the state level. And so the districts where there's a lot of money, they will go and perform five or six or seven times and get lots and lots of practice and lots of clinicking, lots of adjudicating. Uh, whereas someone who doesn't have the funds to do that is not going to be able to. So um, then we also get into the issue of what does your ensemble look like? And what does the bias uh, say from the judges? What attire do they have? If you are in a district where you're able to afford formal attire for everyone, that immediate impact when you walk on the stage is going to, for a lot of judges, whether they intend for it to or not, um, lead to some assumptions about the ability level of the group and about how well they're going to perform um, because they quote unquote look professional. Um, so lots, there are lots of issues and not, not to mention even the issue that MPA costs the money that you've got to pay registration and you've got to pay for busing um, and get the kids out of school and then academic requirements to have them go. So, so all of that just falls under the socioeconomic status umbrella um, when it comes to MPA. So let, let's, let's get into to this race and, and gender issue. Um, so I've seen some research that, that hinted at the idea that, uh, gender actually does play a role, um, in adjudicators assessment and so does race. Um, what, what are your thoughts and views on that? So, I mean, there have been, there have been several studies that have looked at both race and gender in solo ensemble festivals and in large group adjudication. Um, and the, Overall, if we look at the findings overall, they're, they're generally inconclusive at this point. Um, but I do think that we can say from experience that we know that everyone has implicit bias and we know that those things carry over. Um, and anecdotally, I, when it comes to gender, I've heard so many stories, I can't even count, from women who have taken groups to MPA and have had comments made about what they themselves are wearing. Um, it being too formal or not formal enough or too sparkly or why are you wearing heels? You shouldn't conduct in heels and all those different things. Um, and I hear that even more, I think, really from my band colleagues, my female band colleagues um, really struggle with that when it comes to attending UIL. Um, I think that when it comes to the racial makeup of the ensemble, that also is going to kick in some implicit bias for some people. Um, I think about uh, people making assumptions about the way a choir will sound based on the racial makeup of the group or making assumptions about the socioeconomic status of the school based on the racial makeup of a group. Um, there was one really disturbing 
study from the 90s that was looking at solo ensemble performance and they had uh, two trumpet players and two flute players. Um, and then within each instrument, they had a black male, a white male, a black female and a white female. And they recorded all of them performing, but then they overlaid the same audio on all of the tracks. So the audio was identical across all of the, of the trials. Um, and the video started with a close-up of the student's face, but then it zoomed out far enough that you couldn't really see fingering and technique as well. You could just hear the audio. And they had adjudicators rate each of those performances. Um, and the adjudicators rated the black performers significantly lower than the white performers, even though the audio was identical across all the tracks. And they also, there was no gen, coming when we think about gender, there was not really a difference for the male performers, but the female performers on the trumpet were rated significantly lower than everyone else. So there's that gender association with, with instruments. Um, and I think this is even more complicated as we have increasing numbers of trans and non-binary and gender expansive students in our ensemble. And if we have an adjudicator who has a strong belief about those things, and then an ensemble comes in with a student who uh, is not in the formal attire that the adjudicator thinks that they should be in, that is going to lead to some issues and some bias whenever they are making judgments about that ensemble um, and, and, and how they should be functioning. And it just is impossible to remove all of these biases. And because we don't talk about them in the context of MPA, I think that people assume that they're not there, that it's a bias-free zone, that I'm just grading the rubric. I'm just following the rubric and there's no bias here. And, um, but I, I just think that we, we understand that that's not the case, that we are all subjective people with biases and that those are gonna come into play even if we're doing what we think is an objective process with a rubric. If you were to add a category to a rubric, what would be your wish for that? Well, I think the big factor that's missing is growth. There's no way at an MPA to measure where someone has come from. So if one ensemble starts at an 80 and they get to a 95, that's great. If another ensemble starts at a 10 and they get to a 60, that's way better, right? That, that growth piece is completely missing. And whenever I clinic at MPAs, I almost always start by saying to the ensemble, I just see this one performance. I don't get to see all the work that you've put in. I don't get to see where you came from. Can you tell me first what you're proud of? And they always talk about how much they've grown over the year. And they always talk about the community that they've built together. And those things are so, so, so vital. And while I think it's difficult to put a number on musicianship, and impossible to put a number on community. Um, it is, it's, if we're gonna put a number on musicianship, we need to put a number on growth too. And that needs to also matter. And I think that's something that could apply to every ensemble, regardless of, of any other factors that we've talked about today. Um, and then if I had a second wish, which you didn't grant me, but I'm gonna take anyway, mm -hmm. uh, I, would, I would say that we need to, if we're going to say this is our assessment, then we need to broaden the scope to not just performing a varied repertoire of music, 
and sight reading. Those are two standards and they're two important standards, but they're not the whole shebang. There are many other standards that we are purportedly supposed to be addressing in the classroom. Um, but I think that we often spend the bulk, if not all of our instruction on those two, because those are the two that we're gonna get graded on at MPA. And so if we expanded and allowed our singers other skills to also be valued, like their understanding of historical context, their interpretation of the text, abilities like improvisation and oral skills, rather than just that sight reading of Western standard notation. I think there's so much more variety in what should be happening in the classroom. And so if we want teachers to feel empowered to do those things and to address those standards, then we either need to lessen the weight of MPA or we need to expand MPA so that it includes those things as well. This was awesome. It was. This was awesome, Doc. You're, you're, you, you, are, you, are, you are going to be a pioneer in this field. Thank Absolutely. you. Thank you. That's very kind of you. That means a lot. And I really appreciate you both putting this together and, and asking me to be part of it. We really appreciate you. And it was uh, great to hear about your thoughts. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it.